0: Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached.
1: Morning, family. Morning. Sure, it's good to see all of you. Also, from kids from Tabang, thank you for blessing us. I'm glad you can, can join us today. So, I got quite a, a weighty subject to, to address today, part of our questioning Christianity series. And the question is, is Christianity irrelevant or outdated? And um, when, you, when you hear that, one of the first things that come to mind is a very famous quote from C.S. Lewis that says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. What we must not do is to regard it as a mere instrument for achieving worldly prosperity or happiness, not, I fear, a very uncommon attitude among Christians. So why? So if it is false, it means Christianity has no authority over our lives, right? There's nothing for us to obey. It might contain some general wisdom, some nice ideas, you know, but probably the paperback novel on your bedside table also has a few good things to say. So if it's false really, Christianity has nothing to say. But on the other hand, if it is true, then it is the ultimate authority. Then it is infinitely important, because it is describing life and reality as it really is, and we have to obey it. We have to make our lives match up against the truth of it. But if we treat it as a mere instrument to to make ourselves happy or more wealthy, then we're actually treating it as unimportant, right? Because then we're saying, well, if I find something else that has a higher utility in making me happy, then uh, I should ditch Christianity and go with that thing. You know, so that's to make it unimportant. So I think this is a, a really important question for us, for us to answer. And um, yeah, what does the Bible say about it? Psalm 111 says, all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever. So according to the Bible itself, it never goes out of date, right? So to try and get a handle on this very large topic um, and try to, to keep it sort of in one direction and not go off in a hundred tangents, which I think we can do, I'm going to try and do it in this way. So first by looking at some of the arguments why Christianity might be irrelevant or outdated. Then to look at the societal impact of Christianity. And lastly, to look at the individual or the personal impact of Christianity. All right, so we've got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of scriptures, a lot of quotes. So hang on to your seats and switch on your brains. Okay, and let's go for it. So first, let's look at some of the arguments against uh, Christianity and saying why why is it irrelevant and you know I didn't really know where to go to find a summary of these arguments so I asked ChatGPT what what are the arguments <laughs> for Christianity being irrelevant and outdated and the AI gave me some very useful arguments I picked two but I promise you I wrote the answers myself so let's let's see first one Scientific advancements. So some people will argue that the advances in science and technology made Christianity no longer relevant. They believe that many of the explanations and teachings of Christianity, such as creationism and the existence of miracles, are incompatible with scientific evidence. So again... Before we, we get too deep into that, what does the Bible say, right? According to the Bible, mankind, humans, o- occupy two, two realms in a way, right? On the one hand, we are in the realm of science. We are material beings that you can measure, that you can observe, that you can apply science to. And on the other hand, we are also spiritual beings that God breathed in us. Like Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of, du- of dust from the ground. So there's the, the natural, the realm of science, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So when God breathed into us, we also became spiritual beings. So there's the two sides both the, the natural world and also the supernatural world. So some atheist authors have asserted that science in general, and evolutionary science in particular, has made uh, belief in God unnecessary. And in the God delusion, Richard Dawkins goes as far as saying that you cannot be a serious scientific thinker and still hold to religious beliefs. So one of the arguments goes more or less like this. Science has disproved traditional religion because most major faiths hold that there's an older belief in miracles and the supernatural, therefore they cannot be true right so where Where did this all come from? The skepticism and um, questioning of the Bible started in the age of the Enlightenment, right when people started believing that Miracles cannot be reconciled with a modern and a rational view of the world. But the Bible contains descriptions of miracles, and therefore, the Bible cannot be reliable. Right? So they're basically saying, if you believe in science, you cannot also believe in miracles. Right? Um, one, one author summarized it like this, John Macquarie said science proceeds on the assumption that whatever events occur in the world can be accounted for in terms of other non-miraculous events. All right, so whatever you see in the world is caused by something else that is just as natural. That's the, the, the sort of this argument that there's science and nothing but science. So how do we answer it? Well, that premise that science has proven that there is no such thing as miracles is a leap of faith. Why? Because science can only test for natural causes, right? The realm of science is restricted to natural causes. It cannot prove that there are no other causes, right? It, there's no model for testing a statement that says no supernatural cause for any natural phenomenon is possible, right? That is a philosophical presupposition. It's not a scientific finding. Because science cannot do that. That's not how it works. So, therefore, anyone who says that science is this proven religion actually doesn't understand science. Alvin Plantinga, I think, said this the best in this quote. And he responds specifically to the previous one. And he says... Macquarie perhaps means to suggest that the very practice of science requires that one rejects the idea, for example, of God raising someone from the dead. This argument is like the drunk who insisted on looking for his lost car keys only under the streetlight on the grounds that the light was better there. (laughs) In fact, it would go the drunk one better it would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. <laughs> yeah. Let's look at another, another argument. It basically says someone with a serious and scientific mind cannot believe in God. And it, especially for people who believe in evolution, they this is, appears like almost an irreconcilable difference. Like, how can you believe in the Bible but also believe in evolution? Right? But the fact is that many world-class scientists don't see a conflict between their sci- scientific beliefs and their religious beliefs. There are many, many of them who actually hold, are able to hold both. And it's not necessarily that there is a conflict between science and religion, because that would be based on this grounds that science has actually disproven religion, which we just covered and said that that's that's not possible. So a Christian can believe in evolution as a process, right? Without necessarily believing in something called philosophic naturalism, right? Now philosophic naturalism. And again, you're going to have to switch on your brains. I've got a few big words like this to cover. But philosophic naturalism is the belief that everything has a natural cause, including all uh, organic life, that even that is caused by nothing other than random forces working over time and that it was guided by no one. Right? So that makes evolution an all-encompassing theory, right, that says it explains absolutely everything about life. But that cannot be proven. It's a philosophic, um, it's, a, it's a philosophical belief rather than a scientific one. All right, and then I just need to quickly make a, a side note here, that theistic evolution, that is the, the belief that God somehow used evolution to guide the processes in creation to arrive at what we see today is not the only belief held by Christians, and it's not necessarily the best one, but it is one that is reconcilable with Christian beliefs and with the Bible, to say that God used evolution as a process. Um, Yeah, so... When it comes to, to these things, many Christians and many scientists actually take a more centristic belief where they see some kind of integration between their beliefs as, as uh, Christians and also their beliefs as scientists. And on the flip side, there are also many atheists who won't agree that science necessarily excludes all religion. One of them would be Stephen Gould, who was a harvest professor... Who said, either half my colleagues are enormously stupid, or else the science of Darwinism is fully compatible with the conventional religious beliefs and equally compatible with atheists. So there isn't necessarily a conflict. And just because you believe in, um, you hold certain scientific persuasions doesn't exclude you from being a believer in God. Right, that's, that's the first argument. And most of these answers that I just um, shared with you, I took from a book by Timothy Keller called The Reason for God. And if anyone has questions about these things, has some skepticism that you're trying to, to allay, I really recommend um, this book. It's an it's excellent, excellent resource. Right, but moving right along, still have plenty of ground to cover. Second um, argument about how Christianity might be outdated can be summarized as, others argue that Christianity is outdated because it fails to keep up with modern, cultural, and social changes. They believe that Christianity's teachings and values are out of step with contemporary social norms, particularly regarding issues such as gender, sexuality, and race. So people who hold this view are asserting that our contemporary social norms are right simply by being contemporary. So Christianity, with, with its values, because it's old, in fact, it's ancient, and it appears very distant from our own cultural moment, right? And it was written to, to a group of people who are very distant from where we are. You know, when you see that, you might ask, how can, a, can such an ancient religion um, and such an ancient book have anything to say to us here today? Right? Is, how, how is it possible to translate something that's more than 2,000 years old into our world today? But this belief betrays an uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. That's what uh, C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Right? You're a snob for believing that whatever we believe today is better because it's be- not what we believed yesterday. That's chronological snobbery, right? But surely, we don't really think that everything that people in the past believed is false, right? Surely, there must be some, some wisdom in it. In fact, another quote from, from Lewis, every age has its own outlook. It's especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to making certain mistakes, so we want to discern which of the old beliefs and the old values were the good ones, and which ones were the mistakes that they made. And we need to ask questions like, this idea, why did it go out of date, right? Was it, was it ever refuted? And if it was refuted, by whom was it refuted? And how conclusively, right? Was it conclusively set aside, or is there still merit in it? Put another way, um, one of my favorite authors is G.K. Chesterton, and he said, real development is not leaving things behind as on a road, but drawing life from them as from a root. So don't just pass on from your old ideas, but actually say, what can I draw? How can I draw life out of these old ideas? And Christianity is one of those very old ideas, but also very life-giving. And um, I think we'll see some of that in the, in the next section. So the, the idea that, that Christianity has gone out of date actually rests on an assumption that our contemporary norms and our contemporary beliefs have improved on those that were formerly... Um, informed by christianity right that that where we are today is better and more progressive than the older values of christianity but again another quote from lewis we all want progress but progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be and if you have taken a wrong turning then to go forward does not get you any nearer if you are on the wrong road Progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. So the question should actually not, not be, is this idea current and new, but where do we want to go? And is our current beliefs and values getting us nearer to where we want to go? Is it, is it taking us to the new Jerusalem. So, let's um, let's evaluate our ideas carefully and not, not just say, because Christianity is old, it's got nothing to say. In fact, let's look at the societal benefits that Christianity has had, because I think this is a good illustration of why we should still hold on to it. So, to discuss the societal impact of Christianity is an enormous task. Um, I think I wouldn't know where to even start, but fortunately there's one very good academic study that I can reference, and it's the one by Robert Woodbury, The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy, which was first published in the American Political Science Review. And it's it's a study that that looks at the link between Protestant missionaries and the rise of liberal democracy. And and it shows, it attempts to show statistically that the historic prevalence of Protestant missionaries has made society better on almost every level and created the environment in which a stable liberal democracy could develop regardless of how many people actually converted to Protestantism, all right? So just a little bit of, of background on this. This is an empirically researched um, paper, right, based on historic evidence and um, statistical analysis. It was published in a, in a respected journal after being reviewed, peer-reviewed and vetted, Right? and they really put this guy through the meat grinder. He really had to prove every single statement that he made in this paper. And you can, if you want to read it yourself, it's only 32 pages. So I can uh, <laughs> I can help you get hold of it. It's it's fascinating, but um, yeah, it studies this link between how pre- the presence and the influence. Of Protestant missionaries and how democracy um, arose in a historical context. So, looking not only in Europe, but also in America, also in African contexts, Asian contexts, especially looking in the colonial eras um, and the spread of, of missionaries, contrasting both uh, Protestantism with Catholicism as well as other religions, it's uh, very thorough. And it, it specifically highlights that it was the conversionary Protestants that had this impact. So, a conversionary Protestant is defined as someone who actively tries to persuade others of their beliefs, right? Someone who emphasises lay Bible reading, right? So that everyone should be able to read the Bible in their own language, and then that though, they were people who believed that. We are saved by grace through faith, not through group membership, right? So not just because you're a member of this church or not because you take certain sacraments. And then lastly, the conversionary Protestants were usually also the ones, especially in terms of the missionaries, who were not state-funded, right? So they weren't funded by the colonial governments, and they weren't um, supported by state churches. And these are the guys that, that had this enormous effect. And then just kind of a qualification, what what is pointing out is the mean effect. So when we say that conversionary Protestants had the effect of creating an environment in which democracy could flourish, we're not saying that every single place that had a Protestant missionary has democracy today is looking at the, at the average effect, um, most broadly speaking, and found that even when you, when you take a lot of other factors into account, the one thing that still stands out, the one variable that, that comes out in the statistical analysis remains the Protestant missionary factor. So, these guys fostered the rise of liberal democracy through a couple of innovations. That would be mass printing, newspapers, mass education, voluntary organizations, religious liberty, and colonial reform, and the rule of law. And I think you can all see how these are the things that that a democracy is based on. And they... They sparked these innovations not and and they weren't necessarily the only people that that participated in it, but because they started for example mass printing they ha- they kick other other groups to do the same right because the moment that the missionaries started mass printing and newspapers, they started to threaten the power of the elites in every uh, one of these contexts and Those guys had to respond to the growing influence of the missionaries by also doing mass printing, education, um, you know, forming political organisations, etc. So even though the the Protestants didn't necessarily have the biggest influence and didn't always continue with these things, often they were like education was often nationalised. Right? And the missionary schools became government schools. But they're the ones that that got the ball rolling. So let's look at some of their motivations. In fact, let me just mention this that the missionaries were the first people to really drive these things. But it wasn't that other groups didn't have the ability to do so, they just didn't have the motivation. But as the Protestant missionaries went out around the world with the aim of converting people, with the aim of, you know, really changing societies, they had the motivation for this. And so they, for example, got into mass printing because they they believed that books were meant for everyone, right? That everyone needed access to the Bible. And that's why they started printing Bibles in mass because Bibles had to be cheap right and they also printed tracts and they printed sermons and and then newspapers right and making known what was going on especially in colonial areas right they started publishing also when it comes to mass education they believed that everyone had to be able to read the bible and to interpret it properly so they started educating everyone they educated the poor that was never done before. The educated women. It was often not even done in elite societies, not even among the rich that women get education. Um, and everyone else was... Op- it, it, they democratized education that absolutely everyone had to, to learn. And that was something that today, even other religious groups have long since adopted, this belief that education is important. But it was the... The Protestant missionaries that really sparked it. They also developed and spread new forms of um, organizational or new new ways to to organize, right? And nonviolent protests, because they try to to develop ways that they could oppose colonial abuses, that they could, um, you know, act activate a civil society, that they could activate public participation. So they developed things like boycotts, nonviolent protests, pamphlet printing and um, you know people going around doing public speaking and creating voluntary organisations where you know they had to fundraise. None of these things really existed in the past. And a lot of this development is what what led to, to political parties forming, right? They gave a platform for nationalists and anti colonial um, organizers, activists, right? They gave them a way to, to start to organize and to start to turn turn the tide. And these these guys are the sort of the ancestors of a lot of the things that we know today as non-government organizations, political parties, and the like. In the area of religious liberty, it was non-conformists, and that would be um, conversionary Protestants who were not state-sponsored, right, who didn't get money from their state churches or that kind of thing. They were often the ones that were persecuted by governments, and even by state churches. And they're the ones who started really advocating and lobbying for religious freedom and to stop government interference in the um, civil society. So we can really, really thank the Protestant missionaries to a large degree for the religious liberty that we enjoy today. And then on the point of colonial reform, it was often the missionaries... Who criticized and publicized the colonial abuses, right? And they're the ones that would write to the colonial governments and say, your governor here in South Africa is doing X, Y, and Z, and get those guys reprimanded, removed, etc. So they were a moderating um, effect, they had a moderating effect on colonialism because they were the guys on the ground seeing what was happening and making, um, making these things known, right? And they're the ones who also advocated for change. They lobbied. They had a lot of lobbying power. And they transferred those skills and the knowledge of how to organize and how to, how to um, start working against colonialism. They transferred that, those skills to the local people and started enabling the activists, the local activists, to work against it. Um, and in, a, in that way, they, in a sense, also fostered the nationalist movements that eventually led to the end of colonialism. So, yeah, they, you can really see how the, the effect of the Protestant missionaries, specifically these conversionary Protestants, created the environment in which democracy could flourish right so not to say that they directly created democracy but they created the environment that didn't exist before in which we could eventually achieve democracy and and the what the study shows is that the link between their presence and stable democracy is very strong that the more the more protestant missionaries you had say, in the 1800s, the more likely you are to have a stable democracy today. And that it's a very long effect. And that in places where there were fewer uh, Protestant missionaries or very f- where they were severely restricted, you often got very illiberal states and you got um, a lot more authoritarian um, forms of government so, yeah, so I think in South Africa, we are also the heirs of this, right? And the influence of people who really believed that every single person had to be born again, right? Because they believed that man was made in the image of God. And that brings me to the individual impact of Christianity, right? So I want to, want to look at two, two sides of it equality and dignity, and it's the Christian beliefs that really form the bedrock of our modern beliefs and notions about equality and dignity, right? Without the Judeo-Christian concept of man as the image of God, we really have no grounds, you know, for to view all humans as equals, and there's no grounds for human beings having inherent dignity, and these are two values that today are almost universally accepted. And I think it's also a highly current matter in South Africa. Right? These two values are some of the most highly contested values as far as South African civil society goes. right I mean, I think you all know that the biggest uproars happen when these are violated. Just think how social media blows up. And how politicians jump on it and how they make the most hay out of, out of these issues, right? I'll give you one example. Think of the, the recent and terrible racist incident that happened in Marcel Sport on Christmas Day. The, the very suggestion that the black boys were not allowed to swim in that swimming pool inflamed the whole nation, right? Everyone was in an uproar because it violates equality, and also, you know, the choking and the attempted drowning of the boy—it trampled on his dignity, and the whole country burst into flames, in a way, because of that. And I think it's right. I think it's right that we respond like that. So, where do we where do we get this um, this idea of equality and dignity? Right. And and why is racism so wrong? One, and that's a, that's a big topic that <laughs> I'll only skirt around a little bit today, only to say racism is always a power play, right? Racism is insisting that the victim is not your equal, and then usually also rubbing their face in it, right? But... The Bible turns, turns it around, and I want to show you how. Dignity as well. Dignity is also the cry of the poor in our country, right? I think it's understood that the millions of unemployed youths in our country are, are being denied the dignity of gainful employment, as are all of those in our, in our society who are unable to sustain themselves through gainful Work, you know, honest work. So, dignity is another big issue and it's, it's, it's alive. Um, just to quote a resident of an informal settlement who recently spoke to the Daily Maverick, Dolian Tonga said, An RDP house would give me dignity because it comes with a flush toilet. So, equality. Dignity and the sanctity of human life all derive from what theologians call the imago Dei, or man as the image of God. Right, Michael Hayser described it like this. He said, humanity is in some way like God. The copy is in like the original creator in some way. But mankind wasn't only created in God's image, that is to say, like him in some way, but also as God's image. And there's a subtle difference there. You see in Genesis 1 that man was made as God's representative. When God said, let him rule, he said, let man be my representative. So we're not only made like God, But we're made as God's image, as God's representative. And that is the grounds for all equality and dignity. Let's get a bit deeper into equality. Genesis chapter 9. And God says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from men. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And human life is more than valuable. It's sacrosanct. It's inviolable. But not based on any external factor like wealth or status. Right? But it's based because all men are in the image of God. That's the, that's the foundation of equality. And it's also the grounds for democracy. Right? Man, as the image of God, says that there's no difference between the president and the pauper. There's no difference in value between me and my car at the traffic light and the beggar who's also standing at that traffic light. We, we are exactly of the same value. And this is also democracy. It says that we value the opinion of the man who is least likely to give it. Right? The, the man who sees himself as the lowliest, the most humble man, has one vote, just like I do. And that is a particularly Christian idea. So the prohibition against murder is based on man's value as the image of God. And every other civil law has the same basis, right? If you lie, if you cheat, or if you abuse your neighbor in some way, you are actually violating that person's value, right? Or you are denying that they have the same value as you do as a fellow creature in the image of God, And in the same way, any public policies that do not lead to the systematic improvement of equality among people is wrong, and it has to be corrected, right? Because it doesn't recognize our equality as fellow image bearers of God. Now, you might maybe just push back a little bit at this point and say, but hold on, from a materialistic point of view, we are all equals, we are all humankind descended from a common ancestor. Doesn't that give us an equality? But the fact is, it's the law of the jungle. It's always been the strong and the powerful that abuse the poor and that... um, you know, are willing to expend the lives and the livelihoods of the of the poor in their own interest, right? It's always been the the strong oppressing the weak, and I think I can give you many examples, um, current examples like the war in Ukraine. Putin uh, is expending the lives of so many um, many soldiers and civilians, serving his own ambition. Or in South Africa, the politically connected who are um, enriching themselves at the expense of the poor, right? And this is how the world outside of Christianity has always been. Even Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, said it's natural for a slave to be in chains, that that's just how the world is. But the Bible turns all of this on its head and says, no, even the slave is your equal, because we are all made in the image of God. So lastly, dignity. Let's, uh, let's start to wrap this up. Dignity, I'll define to say, it's, the, it's a life that's congruent to its value. So we read in Proverbs 14, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Let's read that again. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Why is that? Because if you oppress the poor, you deny him the dignity that belongs to him as a man in the image of God. So let me give you this illustration you go to Nelson Mandela Square and you throw a bucket of paint on that statue, you are dishonoring the memory of Nelson Mandela. If you go up to a painting and you disfigure the painting, you are dishonoring the painting, but you're dishonoring the painter. More so if that painting is a self-portrait and you throw a bucket of paint on a self-portrait, you are dishonoring the painter. And in the same way, when we dishonour our fellow man, we are dishonoring their creator. That is why Proverbs 1421 says, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. So failing to love our neighbor is failing to love God, who is reflected in our neighbor. But Jesus, by his heroic neighbor love, has raised human dignity far above anything that we could have imagined. Let's read Philippians chapter 2, scripture that's come up a lot in the last year. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, being God, got up from his throne, emptied himself of his glory, and came and became a servant, became our servant. And that is how much worth he sees in us. Right, That he did not hesitate to take on the form of fallen man in order to serve us and in order to, to not only serve us in general but serve us to the point of death. Right? That is how much value he sees in us. That is the worth that he placed on you. And he illustrated this um, John chapter 13 when he when he washed his disciples' feet, right? And it says that um, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing You do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Love is the most dignifying action of all. When you love, you recognize and you draw out the worth of the person that you love. And look at how Jesus loved his disciples. Right? Even Judas, he washed his feet. He didn't come to Judas and skip. He said, No, I'm washing I'm even washing your feet. I'm even affirming your worth. But feet, but in, in those years, people were walking around in a very hot and dry climate, wearing sandals, walking in streets that were not paved, that were full of animals. Um, you know, that did their business in the street. Also, towns and cities that often didn't have a sewer system and night buckets and so on being just chucked outside of the house and into the gutters. Feet were dirty in a different way than what we think of dirty feet today. So, those who, who were washing feet were always the slaves, but not just any slave, only the lowest ranking slave in the house would stoop so low to actually wash feet. That's why when Jesus came to Peter, he couldn't believe that Jesus would actually wash his feet, that the master, the teacher, would actually bow down so low to, to wash his feet. Of course, what Jesus was doing was saying, you're so dirty, so full of sin. What I had to do was lay aside not just my clothes, not just my outer garments, but my glory to come and become your servant like a slave washing, washing your feet and affirming your worth by cleansing, cleansing you from your sin. Right? And I've been, I've been talking about dignity this whole time, but the flip side of that coin is shame, right? And, and shame is a, is a belief that because of who you are or because of what you've done, you have no value. Um, it is a, it's like a deep feeling of being unworthy. But when an acquaintance says to you, I love you, it doesn't mean very much, right? But when someone that you really love and admire says, I love you, it changes everything right? The, the more deeply you're known, the more meaningful it is when someone says, I love you. And when Jesus stooped from heaven to wash our feet, he came and he affirmed your worth more than anything else ever could. And when he washed you of, washes you of your sin, he takes away the source of shame, right? He washes us, he cleanses us of sin, cleanses us of our shame, and he affirms our worth. Getting back to, to Dolly Tonga from the informal settlement, I'd say she's looking for dignity in the wrong place. If you think dignity is just having a job, you're looking for it in the wrong place. You're saying, I'd be happy to have a mud pie when actually... You could be sitting down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you let Jesus wash you, right? no one has honored us the way that Jesus has. No one has has put worth on you in the way that Jesus has. So let him wash you. Let him determine your worth. Lord Jesus, wow. Lord, we are in all of what you've done for us, Lord. We are in awe of how you sacrificed for us, Lord, and how you stooped all the way from heaven, all the way to the death on the cross, to affirm our worth, to give us dignity. Lord, we thank you that, that you've given us this grounds for knowing you, for knowing one another, for treating one another as equals. Lord, and we ask that you enable us to live in the dignity that you've instilled in us. Lord, and to treat our fellow persons, our fellow human beings, with the value that they have as fellow image bearers of God. We praise you. We love you. Amen.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Neil. Um, yeah, just, just to summarize what Neil was saying, the reality is, and this is not speculation, this is not opinion, this is statistically and empirically proved reality, is that Christianity has made everything better. It's made society better, and it's made individuals better. We would not have books to read if it were not for Christianity, because it was Christians that said, we want books to be printed, Bibles specifically to be printed so that everyone can read. We would not have education. I mean, most of us, probably all of us can read. You would not be able to read if it were not for Christianity, because it was Christian missionaries that said, we want everyone to read. Everyone else was saying, no, we want to keep poor people poor, and only the rich must be able to read, because someone has to do the hard labor. Everyone was saying that before Christianity. Christians who wanted everyone to be able to read the Bible were the only ones who were saying everyone should be educated. We wouldn't be in this the school hall. There wouldn't even be a school where people, where uh, you know, public school, where everyone could come and study and learn to read and write and do mathematics and so on, if it were not for Christianity. And I know some of you probably have thought, um, because it's been said so often, that you know, Christianity is part of the problem in the world. And one of the reasons why um, that article that Neil was referring to by uh, Robert Woodbury, um, why it took so long for them to publish it is because he scientifically and, and, and statistically proved that what everyone was saying about Christianity, that it made everything worse, was just plain wrong. It was just plain wrong. Yes, there, are, there, there have been Christians who have made things worse. But overwhelmingly, Christianity, where it's been embraced in its most biblical form, has made every society that has embraced it significantly better. And, and why I'm saying that to you, and, and I want you as Christians to really hear this, you can go out into this world and know that when Jesus said, you are the light of the world, he was telling the truth. You can go out into this world and know that when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, that he was telling the truth. You can be confident that you have the only solution that is true, but the only solution that has a proven track record of really working, of really changing not only individual lives, but societies, countries for the better. That is the confidence we can have. So, Father, I just want to bless, Lord, every Christian, every person who's here this morning. I want to bless them, Lord, with a renewed confidence in your word, in your truth, in your gospel, and in the faith, Lord, that they've put in you. And I I pray, Lord, that, um, that we'll go out and be confident witnesses of what you've done, and that we'll share this gospel, this Christianity that we have embraced because we are confident that it is what's best for the people that we're sharing it with that will grant them the dignity of deciding for themselves whether they want to embrace it or reject it because that is what you how you want us to present it. you don't want it to be forced on anyone and we pray that but we pray that we'll com- present christianity and faith in you lord jesus in the most compelling way possible because we know that it will improve the lives of those to whom we present it, to whom we witness. And Lord, I I just bless every saint as they go out, that they'll go out with that confidence and with that love for the people that they interact with. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website, at www.shofar.org.